0: Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide to the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for Frontlines, tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, theological foundations for transformative race conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication, and lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Todd Wilson and Ephraim Smith on Candid Conversations. The Candid Conversation Show is intended to help leaders engage in conversations about diversity in a healthy way. Each show focuses on a topic and helps participants unpack what that topic is, why it's divisive, and what can be done to promote both change and unity. Let's join Todd and his co-host for today's episode of Candid Conversations. Hey, Exponential, welcome back to Candid Conversations. I'll be the host today. My name is Peyton Jones, and I'm the content director here at Exponential. It has been very, very cool to sit in on these conversations over the past few months now. Uh, We've been in it. Uh, for 11 episodes, today is our 12th, and we're hoping to have one final episode where we talk about all the things that we've learned over the past few months. But before we do that, we have to have episode 12 before we can have 13. Little fundamental factoid in life, but I'm here with my guest today, Mark Dimas. And uh, Mark is a multiple book author. He is the pastor of a church that specializes in multi-ethnic diversity and he uh, recently has been doing a very cool thing with uh, cultural assessments for churches and I believe it's called cultural quotient. Is that right? Did I get that right? Uh, Yeah,
1: it's a CQ. It just goes short. You know, it's cultural intelligence basically and short is the initial CQ like IQ, EQ, CQ. So yeah, quotient, but in our world it's cultural intelligence CQ. Mm
0: -hmm. Very cool. Well, Mark, welcome on to Candid Conversations.
1: Yeah, Peyton, thanks so much for having me. I so appreciate Exponential, what you're doing this fall and really raising the awareness, the conversation and providing tools and resources to help people move the ball forward.
0: I appreciate that, Mark. And coming from you, that's high praise because, you know, at Exponential, we had to kind of weather the storm of everything that was going on in America and ask the question, is this mission drift for us? And at the end of it, when, and I, you know, I've, I've said this before, but I've been so proud of our CEO and co-founder, obviously, uh, Dave Ferguson uh, and Todd Wilson, um, the current CEO, uh, they had a conversation and they asked the question, is this a mission drift? And at the end, we came up with the, uh, the very obvious fact. Once you see it in the New Testament, you can't unsee it that these issues are not a new thing, they're a New Testament thing, that the Bible is packed full of diversity questions. I mean, almost every epistle is written over Jew and Gentile, and Jesus, of course, telling his parables, um, you know, the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Of course, there's him ministering the Phoenician woman. Jesus constantly rocked the boat on issues of diversity. So it is a gospel issue. And one of the taglines we've come up with um, for us personally that we're saying around here is to reach every tongue, tribe, and nation, it will take every tongue, tribe, and nation. And if we can't learn to work together, which was our 2020 theme, we're never going to get there.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I appreciate, uh, again, Todd and Dave. I've been involved with them literally since 2005. I think Todd says it was the first Exponential under that brand. It may have been the second, but for 15 years, I've been engaged with Dave, Todd, on a variety of fronts, not only an on exponential, but uh, in, in the earth, the first cohort that was done, uh, part of a group mega church pastors. Of course, I was the only one who wasn't a mega church pastor, and I'm in there beating the drum for, hey man, how can we be missional if we're not multi ethnic, right? And so, but they have allowed the conversation for 15 years to this moment, where other other conferences and or uh, churches uh, and denominations wouldn't even allow the conversation. So they, I really appreciate that they allowed, they gave us space, but I, uh, to have that conversation and been consistent part of exponential for 15 years, but to see it come to this level where it's finally being internalized by the organization, not just seen as peripheral, but intrinsic to the gospel. Mm. And this is where, and, and, and frankly, I mean, we can talk, I came from the white mega church world, right? And I know for a fact, and it's no secret to anybody listening to this, that that is a struggle given the theology that we were taught, what our understanding of the gospel is. It's not that it's wrong, it's just incomplete. And that's really what you're talking about when you dive deeper into the New Testament, beyond what the commentary said, beyond what you were taught in seminary. Again, not that it was wrong. It was just incomplete. And to see that being embraced now on a wide scale and a wider scale is just thrilling to me personally, because this is what it's going to take for us to understand that 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 things like the gospel, I'm sorry, that that multi-ethnicity and economic diversity and justice, these things are not peripheral to the mission or to the gospel. They're actually embedded in intrinsic. So kudos to Exponential, super important uh, and appreciate their history with me and with this messaging. But now to bring it to the forefront with their platform at such a time as this, super important
0: well thanks for coming on and i want to uh really invite all of you that are here tuning in on the hub uh or maybe those that have come later you haven't caught it live um to uh add your comments but for those that are watching live you have a unique opportunity today to actually interact with mark Um, So you'll be able to put your comments in. As we see those comments come in, particularly, uh, usually the second half, but don't wait till the second half because you might actually uh, change the course of this conversation by dropping your comment in. So be sure to go ahead and put your comments, your questions, your thoughts in the comment section and we will direct those at Mark and uh, we have him for an hour. So Mark, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Our topic today, is creating a culture of diversity, creating a healthy culture, because we know that there's uh, there can be an unhealthy uh, culture of diversity. We'll come back to that. But before we jump in, I think it's important for people to hear a little bit about your journey. You you just kind of mentioned it, hinted at it, but give us a little bit about how you personally arrived at the importance of this topic as a leader yourself.
1: Yeah, Peyton, uh, you know, 18 years, a youth pastor in predominantly white churches, never really gave it any thought. 1993 to 01, I came to Little Rock. I was brought here by a church of 2000. Uh, looking back, white, Republican, suburban, uh, evangelical, if you will. Again, I wasn't thinking it like that so much in 1993. Uh, but that church went from 2 to 5,000 in the next eight years, my youth group from 150 to 600. Uh, you know, in terms of student ministry, I had you know, uh, 600 kids. I had 250 volunteers, nine full-time staff. By the time I got done, top 2% of paid youth pastors in America, this church is just amazing. Nationally recognized uh, as one of the teaching uh, churches in the country, involved with Leadership Network. And in the late 90s, I looked around at this otherwise amazing ministry that I had the privilege of being part of and learning uh, in that environment and realized the only people of color were janitors. And that began to bother me. In 1997, I didn't know why that bothered me in the moment, but it didn't sit well with me. And over the next several years, continued to serve in that church, but began to reflect, Open up the New Testament. I had a master's in exegetical theology at the time, now a doctorate in exegetical theology. But essentially, I threw out my seminary notes and did my own work. And I came to recognize that every church in the New Testament outside of Jerusalem was what we would call today a multi-ethnic church, men and women. Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, walking, working, and worshiping God together as one to advance a credible witness beyond the words of the gospel, beyond the explanation of the gospel, the actual demonstration of the power of Jesus to be lifted up and draw all people unto himself beyond the distinctions of this world that otherwise divide. And so when that vision, that that messaging, if you will, from the New Testament got into my belly, I realized that Christ envisioned it on the night before he died John 17 Uh, I wrote about that in a book 2007 it became kind of foundational core theology I think our good friend Larry Wachemeyer wrote something recently on John 17 for exponential Uh, but Christ envisioned it on the night before he died Luke describes it in action Jerusalem's not the model church of the New Testament it's Antioch it's everything you want to be right mega missional multi-site and multi-ethnic and then of course Paul throughout his life and writings Prescribes it. In other words, wherever possible, it's not just nice, it's necessary, it's not optional, it's biblical. Once that got into my belly, um, I left that church, not in a huff, really thank God for my years there. I wouldn't be who I am in terms of a leader that I've become without those eight years, but I came to the urban center of Little Rock, 30% poverty, 66% of kids without dads in the home, highest violent crime in the city, with what Christianity today would call three years later a big dream in Little Rock. Could diverse men and women will themselves, and it really is a requirement of will, will themselves to walk, work, worship God together as one to advance a credible gospel in an increasingly diverse and cynical society. And I can't even believe it, Peyton, but here I am almost 20 years later and still slugging it out in the urban center through Mosaic and to see these types of visions that God was not just revealing to me 20 plus years ago, but now to see those come to fruition uh, in the American church is just thrilling.
0: That's amazing. Well, man, thanks for A, taking that journey and second for sharing it with us. And I know you've done that in multiple books, Um, but let's talk a little bit about uh, what a leader needs to do. Obviously, you know, we can jump straight into the practical application of, hey, leader, here's what you need to do. But first, the leader needs to know where they're at, and you and I have spoken before, and I know that uh, the the first thing that you would say is is the leader needs to understand where their church is at, mm-hmm. and we just kind of talked a little bit about the um, uh, CQ. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, and how is that helpful for a leader to know where the church is at before they can know what to do?
1: Yeah, and if I could address that in two ways, talking sp- specifically first to the leader as an individual and then about the cq and the collective need uh, that you have as a leader it's always broken up obviously in all things we do should be a why how and a what right so like you said we can jump the what but we really have to understand the why and the how so as speaking to you to those of you listening as an individual leader in your church the why is the theology that's got to get in your belly Right? The why. Because again, this isn't about demographic shifts, not because the late Rodney King asked us all to get along, not because Barack Obama represents the changing face of America, 43% of millennials are non-white, on and on. We could talk about all those things, sociological factors. This isn't about political correctness, this is about advancing a credible gospel. So that theology's got to get in your belly. Uh, My good friend Derwin Gray has said, you know, you can't build a healthy multi-ethnic church unless first you have a multi-ethnic life, right? you got to build a healthy multi-ethnic life, which is rooted in that theology. And then the how, uh, my first book, Seven Core Commitments, Empower Diverse Leaders, Take Intentional Steps develop cross-cultural relationships, pursue cross-cultural competence. Uh, These are some of the seven core commitments. So that becomes the, the how of you advance this, and of course the what is all under that how. So the theology Uh, of why, the how, seven core commitments for building a healthy multi-ethnic church, the what comes after that. So, but as an individual leader, get that theology in your belly. Everything flows from that. To the collective church, then, how do you lead and pitch the church in this cultural moment? Of course, that's more your specific question. And that, uh, as as you and I have talked before, Peyton, uh, knowing what I know, 20 plus years in this space and having the tool that we have through Mosaic's Global Network now in partnership with the Cultural Intelligence Center, Dave Livermore in Grand Rapids in Chicago, um, to the, what the number one need for, I would say every church in America right now, but certainly every majority culture church in America right now, if I was king for a day and I could you know, wave my magic wand and, and, and make everybody do what I know they need to do, I would require every church, majority culture church particularly, to take a CQ assessment and training, what is that? CQ assessment is the most validated research tool of its kind in the entire world. Uh, it's been taken. The assessment is a fifteen to twenty-minute self-scoring assessment online. It's been taken to date by over one hundred and fifty thousand people in one hundred and sixty-five countries, peer-reviewed and validated in over a hundred journals. The Cultural Intelligence Center works with Google, Facebook, Harvard, Starbucks, the American Department of uh, Defense, but they can't deliver it to the church world, the faith-based world, because it's a secular for-profit company. So they've partnered with Mosaics to deliver this in affordable ways to the American and North American church, even in Canada. What happens? As an individual, basically, we want to assess and do an MRI on your specific church. What your specific church needs in terms of its strengths and weaknesses, opportunities for growth in terms of its cross-cultural engagement, cultural intelligence, et cetera, is very different than what the church up the street needs. So think about it as your church is like an individual body. And and Peyton, you and I have different bodies. We have different DNA. We have different strengths, different weaknesses in terms of our physical body. Uh, But when you go to a doctor, Uh, potentially they do an MRI and they say, here's where you're strong and here's the weakness. Once you get the MRI on your specific body, it gets treated with specific remedy uh, and prescription, so to speak. That's what CQ assessment is. It's the MRI for your body. It's a selfie in the moment of where your church sits in terms of cultural intelligence. So how do you get that? All the paid staff, all the key lay leadership, your elders, deacons, a group is formed each person takes that individual assessment. It measures what is their motivation to walk and work with diverse people. Uh, What is their current knowledge of diverse people? What are the strategies that they might uh, employ on the front end, being thoughtful to engage diverse people? And of course, what is their action? Do they actually take steps, uh, intentional steps, and put into place that drive, that knowledge and strategy to effectively engage diverse people, whether in the church, the marketplace, what have you. So each individual is measured along these lines. Then on our part, we aggregate those scores, the individual scores, to create a group report. Again, an MRI for your specific body. We present all of that with faith-based componentry and theology in a six-hour workshop that we can do online or in person uh, with our facilitators, and at the end of that training, your church knows exactly where it sits where it's strong and where its opportunities for growth are in terms of developing cross-cultural relationships, competence, intelligence, engaging a diverse uh, community for the sake of the gospel. And then on the back end, of course, working with our team at Mosaics, we can help write the specific prescriptions and remedies to address your opportunities for growth and weaknesses as a church. So you're not just self-diagnosing and taking random Prescriptions, random remedies that might have worked for someone else, but it won't work for your body. Everyone needs, in my opinion, that's the starting point. Don't post a hashtag. Don't, uh, you know, there's so many things that are good, but you don't really know if that's good for your church until you get the MRI. And that's what CQ assessment and training is all about.
0: Very cool. Now, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, which um, you made the statement uh, that before you get a multi-ethnic church, you need to develop a multi-ethnic life can you unpack what that looks like for a leader
1: yeah for sure well again it's uh, you know everything i always tell you it begins with theology right bro uh, it starts with understanding the nature of the gospel it's not just about individual salvation it's about collective a collective salvation think about it even in the old testament the entire nation of israel is saved like we don't even understand what that means frankly you know how how does that work but there's this individual and collective component so to build a healthy multi ethnic life it begins again with theology this isn't just about you in fact when you're reading paul in the new testament throughout his letters and he's saying put on the armor of god uh yeah can Mark DeMoz learn from that passage? Yes. Should Mark DeMoz put on the armor of God to resist the schemes of the devil? Yes, of course. Is that what Paul had in mind when he's writing? No. He's speaking to the collective body, this multi ethnic church, to resist the schemes of the devil, which seek to divide you along the color of your skin and cultural heritage, the collective you. In the South, we say y'all, y'all collectively right? Must put on the armor of God. So we have to understand first uh, to build that multi-ethnic life. It's not just about us. Philippians chapter two, do not merely think about your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And again, the context is other people groups. So we've got to get that belly to advance a credible gospel, to go into all the world, make disciples of all people. We have to be culturally intelligent uh, in terms of that engagement. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I'm outside, as you can tell. And uh, so all it begins with good theology. Is now, it like grinding you know, a tree over there or something? I know. So, yeah, we live uh, <laughs> off a road and somebody's showing off their Hemi engine or something. I don't know. But um, nice. but again, spending time reflecting on the Word of God, and particularly as new, uh, in the New Testament. God's heart is revealed for all people throughout the Bible, of course. But specifically for we who are church leaders, the New Testament, the ecclesiology, the exegesis, we, as you mentioned at the top of the program, Peyton, once you see it, in what you're gonna see it everywhere. It's like that car, you know, you get a car, it's brand new to you, you think you're the only person that ever had this car until you get it, you own it, and now you drive and you see it everywhere. That's what will happen, so that gets in your belly. Then secondly, we've got to be intentional. Um, we have to, uh, to be intentional in building cross-cultural relationships, getting beyond those that are otherwise natural to be around. Birds of a feather flock together. To break out of that, we're gonna have to be intentional. We intentionally move towards diverse people. In terms of our leadership, we surround ourselves, we empower diverse leaders uh, with us because those diverse leaders bring diverse perspectives and that's how we get a rich and robust both theology and praxis in our ministry. We've got to uh, pursue that cross-cultural intelligence like we're talking about. This, You just don't sit back and pray, God, help me understand how to relate to others. We've got to get knowledge. We've got to pursue that in an intentional way, promoting a spirit of inclusion both in our homes and our lives. Who's spending time with you on Friday? Who do you take out after church? Who are you allowing your kids to play with? Who do you go to the movies with, go to the lake with, right? We make intentional choices to uh, to uh, in that interact and to engage and to build friendships with people who are different than us and not in a transactional way, but in a relational way. Like in other words, I don't want to just invite uh, my African-American friends to come over and hang out with me on Friday night and we get here, we eat, we hang out and then I go, man, y'all teach me something about this Black Lives Matter stuff, right? That's kind of transactional. Man, I just want to hang out. I want to be friends. I want to build relationship and then, uh, and, and 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 through that, then I am, gaining understanding that I've never had. A story, real quick, when I hired my first staff, we empowered uh, diverse leaders before we even launched the church and figured out a way to get several people on board. We had five people, three getting paid money, black, white, and Hispanic. But we went out to an early staff meeting and uh, I'm sitting around the table with six or seven people, our initial staff, and one of them is an African-American woman or 50, about 55. We'd hired her, paid her. She's on staff and she starts talking about how, why she's pro-choice. I was hit between the eyes. I never I never had been in a church where somebody on staff would declare themselves to be pro-choice. Now, as she explained, and we went further into the conversation, it wasn't so much that she was wanting, you know, babies to be aborted and killed and all that, but she brought up the other side, which today is you hear all the time. We, yes, we want to be pro-life for, for prior to birth, but we also want to be pro-life after the fact right and that today is a common theme but two twenty years ago when i was getting hit with that i'd never thought about that before so again having diverse people in my life both in terms of our, our staff and our church as well as in my relationships that's helped open my eyes into understanding and and i don't just throw out what i know but it brings me more to a centered and holistic gospel not just a part of the gospel or a segment of American Christianity, I get a fuller picture of who God is, how big is His love for us. Ephesians chapter 3, I know the height, the breadth, the length, the depth of God's love. This is in the context of a multi-ethnic church and Paul's talking about to express the manifold wisdom of God, the multicultural, that's what the word means in Greek, wisdom of God. Each person, each people group brings a unique perspective. Some have the height of God's love, some the length, the breadth, the depth. Paul wants us collectively as a church to know the totality of God's love. And we can only do that in our lives, in our churches when we build healthy multi-ethnic relationships.
0: Yeah. You know, and this is called candid conversations. I mean, we're, we're going to have some, you know, you just brought up a a very, um, I would say embattled and impassioned subject there, um, which is not today's theme. So we, we, we won't go deeper on that, but, um, I know that there are people that are anti-abortion, um, yet are pro-choice. And so there's, there's different reasons for that, I suppose. But, you know, like you said, talking to different people, of different persuasions, trying to get an understanding. How do you, we can live in a bubble? And I think because this is candid conversations, I believe that um, it's important to ask the question because I think it's assumed sometimes it's only white people that live in a bubble. Is it possible to be a person of color? and to also not want to venture over, if I'm black, I don't want to make Arab friends or I don't tend to, if I'm Arab, I don't make Asian friends. If I'm Asian, I don't make Mexican friends or Hispanic friends. Is it possible that um, it's not just, you know, because right now the narrative is that it's white people only living in a bottle and and I'm the white guy, so I'm gonna ask that question. Um, My family is very uh, ethnically diverse. Um, So I I would ask that question, not to make a point, not to be fragile white guy, but literally just to really ask the the, the, this is the place for those kinds of questions. What's your take on that?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, I mean, this is a human thing. This is beyond, you know, ethnicity. I don't like using the word race that perpetuates the myth that there's multiple Mm -hmm. races. There's only one race, the human race made up. Multiple ethnicities—the Greek word "ethnos," "ethne" in the plural. Mm-hmm. So, uh, all that's to say is this is a sin problem, not so much a skin problem at its foundation, right? right. And so, yes, it's it's not natural uh, to to engage, to be around, uh, to buy in, if you will, to people who aren't like you. It's it's hard work to engage and to walk and to be with diverse people than you. It, it's not necessarily what you like all the time is to be around people who aren't like you. So, we know from the human side, from that that side, it's not natural, it's hard, it's not always what we like. But then again, when we cross over from the natural to the supernatural, and we have to live in the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the will of God, not the will of Mark DeMoss, I mm. need to reject all that. I need to set aside, when I signed up for this Christian thing, it wasn't about living in the natural. It was about living in the supernatural, going above and beyond all of that. So yes, from a human standpoint, of course, you know, uh, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Korean, Mexican, however you want to break it down, uh, yes, there's a, a tendency from the human side to, to be, live in a bubble, if you will, to, to buy in and to hear the narrative of that particular bubble and assume that that's foundational for everyone and that's the way to think. But when we cross over into that, again, that supernatural, then we realize, hey, we are living in a bubble, and what, bubble's probably not the best word, but, you know, we do have a certain perspective, let's say, as white culture, uh, because white people, it, that's a culture in and of itself. It's not necessarily an ethnicity, but it is a culture, right? And so there is a white culture, and particularly when we think about evangelical or mainline the American church, but then African American is a culture, and Hispanics have a culture Mexicans and Puerto Ricans talk to them you know I'm just saying there's like there's division and distinctions right
0: because even within these color you know these ethnicities there are subcultures so for example uh, amongst white you know I, I I would tell people hey I grew up under a single mom um I lived in a trailer park twice in my life I grew up in an apartment. My mom managed apartments so she could afford to live there. Um, so, you know, uh, th- that whole idea, and sorry out there, white America, if you're trailer trash, but that that was the term. You know, I would tell <laughs> yeah, people yeah, yeah. I was trailer trash at, at, a, at a stage in my life. And, yeah. and now I would not be in that subculture. I've, I've moved up the you know socio uh, socioeconomic uh, strata. I am I am now not a bottom feeder in that. But I'm in I'm a middle class American, and I watched my mom do that. Right, I watched mm-hmm. her kind of climb that social ladder. But there, I literally have within some of my family members, I have uh, a a a redneck uncle who uh, is now passed on to glory, but he was illiterate. He had no teeth. He couldn't read. He ate squirrel. I mean, all of that. And so even amongst like different and, and for my people that, that, you know, they're Hispanic, they would look at uh, within their uh, whole cultural uh, pantheon. They would say, look, do not talk to people from the Hispanic community as if they're all the same. My Asian friends, Say, do not lump us all in together at all. Yeah. Like, it's amazing because I remember even, you know, within when I was a pastor, I had a Korean congregation that was with me and uh, they were meeting in my church and they taught me all of their cultures. And they, mm-hmm. they said, this is how we interact with the Asians of different cultures. And I found that absolutely fascinating and even amongst like the koreans there were certain groups of of asians that they were like yeah we, we we have to overcome this for the gospel because we're still mad at the japanese or we're still mad at you know what i'm saying it was yeah. really fascinating to see that like you said this was something that was culturally universal and i think it's very comfortable to stay. I, I had the benefit of having my mom be an ESL teacher. So she would, we we're in California, she'd bring everybody home uh, for Christmas, Thanksgiving. So I got to learn about all these different cultures and you know, figure I'd go and become a missionary, right? Mm-hmm. But it, here's the thing, Mark, I want to ask you this practically. I'm a leader, I'm listening to the show today. And you've told me I need to have a multi-ethnic life. Does that mean making friends of other cultures, ethnicities? Um, Does that mean um, joining? I mean, what does it mean? What what do I do? Put some skin on it. Put some shoe leather on it. What does it look like for me? How do I start as a leader to become multi-ethnic?
1: well again I, I think it's you know it, it starts with theology understanding what that's about it, it means putting yourself in environments collectively that are diverse and different than yours it involves there's a piece that involves your motivation which again in my opinion is rooted in theology uh and being a good human being beyond that recognizing the times the men of visigar understood the times and knew what was right to do so there's a measure of motivation we've got to examine our drive our motivation rooted in theology are we willing to extend ourselves to diverse people. We have to develop knowledge of diverse people. That's an intentional thing. We study, we think deeply, we read articles outside of our bubble. Like I can tell you, you know, my, my colleague, Harry Lee, who's a senior pastor at Mosaic is very adept at this, but basically, you know, you talk to a person, you can tell them which news channel they watch, right? Fox News, CNN, he can tell you the stream, you know, who's listening to who. So do you are all is all you're watching is fox news do you watch msnbc do you read the huffington post we've got to get a full perspective right so this is knowledge we can understand we can uh, uh, teach ourselves and and be intentional in terms of knowledge we have to be thoughtful and strategic how are we engaging diverse people both relationally and in terms of our work through the church and again putting in plans of action so these are just some of the things that you do to build a healthy multi-life but back to some of the things you were saying in terms of your own background at a macro level thirty thousand feet what we're really talking about is people in america uh in the last years really i've been observing it for at least 10 years generally speaking americans have lost the ability to think or to speak with nuance and and this is a big problem we've lost the ability to think or to speak or to act with nuance right and so
0: what did we ever have that mark
1: (laughs) yeah well i think there was a time absolutely because for instance uh You know, they they tell the story, Tip uh, O'Neill, he's the leader of the House, a a Democrat, you know, and and then I can't remember who the Republican was, but it used to be, for instance, in American politics that they argue and fight cats and dogs, and then they all went out and had a drink. People, they don't do that anymore, okay? And so the ability to separate um, the politics from the personal, I mean, even today, that that was embedded in, in politics in the past. I mean, even today we had uh, what was the lady, uh, uh, Diane Feinstein gave a hug to uh, Lindsey Graham and Twitter and the de- they blew up, like, right, because the inability to separate the fighting it out like cats and dogs for a political opinion, but not doubting one another's motivations to make the country better. So we've lost this ability. And of course, that trickles into the church and, and all of that. And what you were talking about earlier, yeah, she, the
0: she was and- actually disciplined for that.
1: It's just crazy um so the what you were talking about earlier where we're talking about um you know not all african americans not all white people that we can't lump us all in the same category if you think about it there's kind of a universal perception there's a general perception uh there's the special like when you're talking about subcultures we're going down beyond the general in a particular people group to subcultures uh like in my church i've got african americans that are staunchly opposed to Donald Trump and everything he stands for. An African-American woman in my church is running for U.S. Congress right now. She's neck and neck with the white incumbent. If she wins, she'll be the first African-American ever elected to a national office out of Arkansas ever. Okay. Um, but she goes to my church alongside African-Americans who do support Trump. I mean, I got everything in my church, right? And, but people's inability to, to, to navigate that nuance and then that's, you go down to the precision right then to what's precisely true about that individual so the general thing i look at you oh peyton he's a white guy boom 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 but when we drill down to the specifics and the uniqueness and the precision of your story yeah i see there's it's much more complex i'm the same way single parent i think i look like a white supremacist
0: (laughs) yeah i I think i look like i don't mean to but i am bald i can't grow hair and uh (laughs) Every time I ever flew through Amsterdam when I was a missionary, I got searched for, for drug trafficking. Like, I've been strip searched, you name it. And it was every time. Every wow. time. In fact, I remember the first time I went through the, the security gate and uh, they just let me go through. I went through the. I remember stopping like, whoa, you didn't. You didn't measure me like you didn't motion me over there. That's crazy. But, you know, um, as we talk about this, I think, you know, as practical as we can get on this is really helpful because people want to know where to start and Mm -hmm. what to do. And so, Mark, um, one person said this, and I think this is really scratching where it itches and what you just spoke about, where you said, man, I've got a mix of people in my church and people even within these ethnicities. There are cultural subcategories within like this is all very complex. this person asks how do you explain the biblical need for churches to pursue a multi-ethnic body and then and then because the question sounds like one thing they flesh it out i am a missions director who is the son of a missions pastor and have a very multi-ethnic life however my church is 99% white and does not see change as a need. Now, I know this is this is the ball right in your court because this is, this is what you do. You help churches understand that need. Um, how, what advice would you give to this pastor?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question, and uh, you get it all the time. First of all, understand that just because we have, we've been using this phrase all, all the time, and I don't typically talk about the multi-ethnic life thing. I just brought it up. My friend says it, and it's generally true. But Having a multi-ethnic life doesn't automatically mean you have a multi-ethnic or part of a multi-ethnic church or it develops because you have that. It's still a lot of intentionality that's required. Why is the church 99% white? That's a structural issue. And whether you recognize it or not, there's decisions in the past that were made and decisions that continue to be made along the line that have pitched that church to be 99% white. Um, And that's not any one person's problem so much. I want to believe that. Sure, there's racism, et cetera, but structurally, we didn't know any better. I mean, this is a misapplication of the homogeneous unit principle. 1972, Peter Wagner basically spinning Donald McGavern who said people come to Christ fastest when they don't have to jump through linguistic and cultural barriers in 1966, Peter Wagner then applying that to what became church growth and saying the church grows fastest when it's homogeneous. And what that did in 1972, it gave every single pastor, particularly white majority culture in America, what they thought was a biblical reason to target a people group. Not for evangelism, and discipleship, but to actually plant churches. That's why, uh, for many, for decades, you go to a network or a denomination. They say you say, "I want to plant a church." The first question you're asked is, "Who's your target audience?" That is not a biblical question. So the problem is that 99% church white developed out of a system and a of way of thinking that was incomplete and we're trying to course correct. And now, of course, we got a major issue because an increasingly diverse society is not believing the message of God's love for all people. Why? Because we preach it from segregated pulpits and pews. So it's not just about the diversity. Keep this in mind. Multi-ethnic also means economic diversity. In every community, somebody owns a shop and somebody sweeps it. Peyton just shared his story. I could share the same thing. Growing up single parent home, uh, living in the apartment, selling Avon with my mom on the streets of Alameda at seven years old. Uh, I understand that. And so the point is there's economic diversity. At the, at the end of the day, it's a message of inclusion. Uh, the church is to be uh, as inclusive as it possibly can. And the fact is that more churches aren't inclusive, that there's not more healthy diversity in the church is actually, according to Michael Emerson, there, that it, it, let me say it like this, Michael Emerson uh, in a sociological research has said if you went out, and this is about eight years old, it'd probably be more now, but if you threw 100 seeds, and these 100 seeds are church plants, and you throw 100 into the wind, and they just land randomly, at least 15 to 18 of those should be multi-ethnic churches. But at the time he said that, only seven were. So it's not just that, that they're not developing. We're actually doing things to keep them from developing. And that gets to structural shift. So to the person that asked the question, um, there is a reason your church is 99% white. Likely your community is not like that. And even if you could make the argument that it is, there's economic diversity. How are we pitching the church to the future inclusion? You can play for today or you can pitch for tomorrow. Your neighborhood will be changing. It is already changing as our demographic. And it's not just about ethnicity. It's also about economics and becoming inclusive. And by the way, one last thing to a point you brought up, it's super important. I wrote it down. Peyton, you asked what isn't other people like blacks and Koreans and Mexicans, don't they have the same things the white do at times? Yes. But the onus is on us as white people, as majority culture in this cultural moment, because people People of color have had to gain a measure of cultural intelligence and competence over time. Uh, a pejorative phrase is go along to get along. They've had to uh, in, uh, become assimilated in the culture just to make it, but white people have never had to do that. Now the onus is on us, and it's our turn, if you will, to get to know others and, uh, and to, to interact with diverse others, which requires the intentionality that people of color have had to exercise for for literally centuries in this country and we shouldn't rebel against that or let it be repelling we should see that as an opportunity and a growth for us personally for our searches and for our country
0: yeah 100% agree with you there I think that uh like I said my family being very diverse as it is um I've I've had to be made aware even even before all this I mean this to me has been a blessing that this conversation Mm -hmm. came to the forefront. I think for those that are on mission in neighborhoods where people were different for them. I remember going from Huntington Beach, which is Orange County, right? The the infamous Mm -hmm. Orange County. Um, Orange County Register did an article years ago on their front covers of where did all the black people go? Where are they? Mm -hmm. Like the, um, the lack of ethnic diversity in Orange County was crazy. And I grew up there, but when I came back, uh, Huntington Beach was where the church I was at. They sent me to Long Beach, urban Long Beach, downtown. I'm, I'm talking, for those of you that know uh, Long Beach, we're talking like 2nd and, uh, and Pine or Cherry Avenue and 7th. Um, that's where we planted. And it, it was it was an area that was 50% Hispanic, 30%. I mean, uh, 50% African-American, 30% Hispanic, 20% white and Asian mix. Here we are, a parachute church plant from Orange County. I've just returned from the mission field, and I knew whatever has happened over there. I mean, I planted radical churches out of Starbucks and did all this cool frontline stuff, but I knew nothing that I've done there is going to help me here, right? Like, it's Mm -hmm. starting all over from ground zero. And I remember at a certain point, the church was growing and we were starting to reach the black community, the Hispanic community. Um, But I remember at a certain point, just feeling at a loss, like realizing how unaware I was of things, how uninformed I was, um, how ill-prepared. I was to be in the situation I was in. And it started for me uh, just with with saying to God, help. I did begin to talk to experienced leaders. I began to talk to black leaders. I began to talk to Hispanic leaders. And I told them my situation. But it all started with a prayer of saying, God, I'm going to need you to give me more wisdom than what I have. Um, and that was, that was the start. I, I would say, first off, we had a comment in the chat where someone just said, hey, first thing is you cannot underestimate the Holy Spirit. I mean, remember that the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts was uh, very concerned about this. I mean, you know, when, when Peter gets a vision three times about, you know, his own racism, <laughs> you know, I remind people, the apostles were racists. You know, they, they were taught never to deal with Gentiles. They're gross, they're dirty, they're unholy, they're cut off from God. That's a, that's a latent form of racism that the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. had to overturn. And you know we can say why it existed and this and that, but it's pretty obvious it developed into something God didn't intend. But mm-hmm. one of our, our one of our questions here is: Do you see the need, Mark, for each local congregation to consist of multi ethnicities, or simply to love and celebrate multi ethnicities? That is. Could a predominantly white congregation pursue diversity and love diversity while not necessarily having multi-ethnicities present? I'm thinking of differences of music and preaching styles primarily.
1: Yeah, um, In the short answer is like, I don't know, that's, that's such a false dichotomy in my mind. How can you actually love diverse people and not actually engage and be with diverse people, want to be with diverse people, be intentional in reaching diverse people? So I do, uh, I do see, to answer the question with those words, yes, I do see the need for each local congregation to consist of multi-ethnicities, etc. And it, not just to say in words. This is 1 Corinthians 13. You speak with the tongues of men. But you don't have love you're a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal man i mean in where does first corinthians 13 come from it doesn't have anything to do with a man loving his wife in marriage it's all about jews and gentiles loving one another go back and read first corinthians 12. so we can speak with the tongues of men and this is the idea when somebody also says uh, hey, we can't, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit's fully involved. Yes, the Holy Spirit's involved. It's all about the gospel. Yes, it's about the gospel, but we have been preaching the gospel, and we have been praying, and we have been relying on the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, I don't know, for decades, let's say, in our lifetime, and our churches are not diverse. Okay, so is there something wrong with the Holy Spirit? Is there something wrong with the gospel that we love? Is there something wrong? You see what I'm saying? No, it's, it's wrong with us. Right? So, that, so I, I want the person that made that comment, yes, I totally agree. And like you said, Peyton, that's where it started for me as an optimization, prayer, digging into the Word of God, spending time, getting that calling rooted in my belly. I'm all about that, yes, begins with theology, the Holy Spirit, prayer, the gospel, of course. And yet, I must be intentional. This is part of the sovereignty of God. He doesn't just write John 3.16 on the Rocky Mountains. And by the way, why is it we want to be intentional with everything else? Uh, but somehow when it comes to diversity in our church, we want to shy away. We want to say, oh, man, no. Like, let me ask you, like, I, I'd ask a pastor, I'd say, hey, how do you guys do worship? Do you actually plan the service? Think about preaching series, music styles, everything. Go, oh, yeah, we do all that. Uh, we do that on Tuesdays. Okay, what about your evangelistic strategy? Do you actually have a plan? Do you train people? you go out? Yeah. What about discipleship, small groups? Do you have? A- yeah, and they all say, and then and, and then they, it comes to diversity. You go, Oh, no, man. They throw up their hands. They go, No, man, If, if, if we just if god wants it it'll happen see we want to be intentional all these other ways but when it comes to diversity somehow this is supposed to magically happen through the power of the holy spirit if you will and i'm not of course denying the power of the holy spirit i'm just saying no it's an intentionality thing you don't just show up at your church on sunday and go how does worship work oh man we just show up and we wait on the holy spirit to fall how does evangelism work oh man we just walk the streets and hope for the best you don't do that well why do you do it in diversity
0: well, and I, and I love, I actually really love this question because this was exactly where I was at, was like the, the reason I was seeking God was I was asking uh, God, if the neighborhood around me is 50%, my church, you, like just a few people trickling in here and there from that community, that's, that's not enough. And by the time I left that church and handed over to another team, it was in fact, almost right down the middle, reflective of the community. Now that meant a lot to me, because I knew I was reaching the people. Like I, I wrote a book called Reaching the Unreached, Becoming Raiders of the Lost Heart. And, I, and, and I've got a chapter in there on Samaria. So think of Samaria. What was Samaria to people in the New Testament? It was a place you don't go. And every mm-hmm. city has a place you don't go. It's a place you mm-hmm. drive through. It's not the place you, you drive to, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, at our last Exponential Conference, um, Katie Cole asked the question, who's not? Who's not in the room when you're meeting? That's who you need to be. You need to not just be thinking about people in the room. And I would say to the person who asked that question, one of the things I would, I would really kind of on the back of what Mark suggested is go on mission to the and, and even if mission means just eating at a restaurant in that part of town, starting to hang out, like Mark said, being intentional, that, that is a multi-ethnic life that you are going out of your way like Jesus did to Samaria where it says he had to go through Samaria. He goes out of his way. He sits on that well with that Samaritan woman. He has to go there. He, he does what's inconvenient. And, you know, we've got to be intentional to say, unless you do that, even if it just doesn't start with thinking, this is my Samaria. It's the place I would normally go, right? I've got to go out of my way to be intentional as a church, to be on mission there. Because what I think your question was, was the Sunday morning service. Mm-hmm. That's never where where this stuff starts, by the way. Mm-hmm. It always starts with your mission. And mm-hmm. so if you can make it your mission, hey, we've got an issue here, laying that out to God and putting yourself in the way of the people you want to reach. That's just good old-fashioned missionary work. Um, listening, looking, um, touching, talking, all those things that a good missionary would do that's the start, and you'll find the Holy Spirit just opening um, amazing doors for you. Um, yeah, real quick, Peyton. You know what you're talking about is a single word.
1: Years ago, like I'm going to say, 30 years. I've been in full time ministry 37, 35 years ago. Somebody said, "You know what successful youth ministry is?" I said, "What?" He said, "With." I go, "What do you mean with?" <laughs> he goes, "Like be with kids, be with yeah. kids. That's yeah. it. The one word I love with." That. And that's the same thing we're talking about. Be with diverse people, be with it and and be with it and be engaged and intentional and all that. And like, I love what you said, the humility and obedience, this is Philippians 2, or James, be quick to listen, right? Slow to speak, slow to give your opinion, be quick to listen to the other side, and of course, slow to anger. But Philippians 2 talks about whatever measure of power, position, and privilege this life has afforded you or that you've otherwise gained through your own efforts and means, like Christ, we're to act in humility and obedience towards the other, we're to leverage that power, position, and privilege, not to keep others down, but to lift them up. And mm. that's how the name of God
0: gets exalted. I love it. And, you know, it, it was really interesting because uh, they asked about preaching and worship. And we started realizing that we can't just have, you know, the person with the guitar up front, a very white style, even the preaching. So we, we, I started rotating in. Um, mm-hmm. We always rotated teachers because we are a multiplying church. Um, so that's how we trained. But, um, but we started looking at, w- at all aspects of the service, which, you know, typical evangelical church, it's, it's the, the bow tie, right? The evangelical bow tie. You got the, the worship, the announcements in the middle, and then the, the message. That's the bow tie, right? Mm-hmm. We started looking at all that, and we started realizing we have to represent on stage multi-ethnic and diverse leadership and giftings so when we wanted it not to be male dominated we put females up doing things when we wanted it you know we had to be intentional and I literally had uh, a black gentleman and I invited him to come (laughs) because I I didn't have anyone who could lead a devotion you know everybody was Mm -hmm. a new convert so I recruited somebody to show we value all Mm -hmm. people here as they use their gifts. And, and that may, you know, that leads into our next question, which, you know, someone's asking about tokenism. Was I guilty of that? Perhaps. But it, it's where I started because I thought, well, I've, I can't just have white people up here doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you begin to properly and prayerfully include, recruit, hire minorities without appearing to be guilty of tokenism?
1: Yeah, that, that's really a simple question. It sounds very complex. It's really simple. It, people know your heart. It's all about your heart, like, you know, and, and, and displaying your heart is really rooted in honesty and again, humility. So just remember those three words, express your heart in humility and honesty, and you'll have no problem in that issue. Like, for instance, when, you know, back in the day, you get a postcard and a church is being planted and they've got all these pictures of these diverse people on it. I mean, this is like 20 years ago, people were doing that. That church hadn't even started yet. You go to the church, they're all white, right? I tell people right. today on your website, if you're like a, a predominantly majority culture church and you buy into this theology and you want to be that way, but you're not yet, don't go on your website and go, hey, we're a beautiful, diverse group of people, blah, blah, blah. Go on your website and and say, you know what, we're a predominantly majority culture church, we don't want to be anymore, we've got a lot to learn, we want to mm. be engaged, come be partners with us, help us, come alongside, we want to learn from you, wow. express yourself in heart, humility and, and honesty and that's how very simply in that sense you can avoid tokenism. Another way in terms of hiring, because that's the specific question, the other uh, way too is you've got to keep this in mind. Um, if you hire, let's just say you're a majority culture church, and of course it's lay leadership as well as paid leadership, but let's just say you're a majority culture church and you're wanting to move uh, out and, and empower diverse leaders, Acts 13 1, um, and, and you hire an African American to be your worship leader, okay? If that's the only person you hire, if you will, for a, quite a while, you could subtly be saying to the African American community, you're good enough to entertain us. If you hire an African American to do your children's Work or pseudo ministries work, and that's it. You can say you're subtly be saying you're good enough to nanny our kids. And we know what it's like. I came from a church where the only people of color were janitors. It's not just about who's on your staff, it's also the positions of responsible authority. From your pulpit to your boardroom to the nursery at every station in between, healthy diversity. And by the way, that analogy I just gave was taught to me 20 years ago by the largest, uh, by the African American pastor of the largest African American church in the city of Little Rock. He said, "Be careful, Mark," and I've never forgot his words. So we're empowering diverse leaders at every uh, station, uh, like you were doing in your church. And what you were talking about, Peyton, is accommodation versus assimilation. Rick Warren asked me 10 years ago at Exponential, he said, the neighborhood's changing at Saddleback, 50% is Hispanic, Mark. And he held up his finger. It was like Hmm. that, uh, It was like that movie, what was City Slickers? He goes, what's the one thing? Because, you know, we all know and love Rick, man. He's just like, break it down. Give it to me. I don't want to read 500,000 words you've written on this subject. Just give me the one thing I got to do, right? What's the one thing I told him? You have to understand the difference between assimilation and accommodation. Uh, If I go to the doors of most churches in America, I stand at the door uh, and and they would, your greeters are going to tell everybody, oh, we welcome anyone here. We'd never turn away anyone based on the color of their skin. We welcome anyone to come in this church. And I know they sincerely mean that. But I also know they haven't thought deeply about what it is they mean, because what they really mean, as long as they, that is the other, likes it the way we, the majority culture does things. So I, if I'm in a majority culture church and an African-American shows up, I take him by the hand. I go, here's how we preach. Here's how long the sermon is. Here's how small groups work, Here's how the children's ministry works, the color of carpet, the music. And if that black brother likes it the way we white people do things, one big happy family. But what happens if he says to you, you know, pastor, I think we could attract and, and have more African-Americans engaged in our church if we began to mix in some gospel music to our worship set. You know, what would you say if you're a white pastor? I know I've got a lot of white friends. I'm white myself. They're going to go, oh man, I like a little Fred every now and then. I like a little Israel in the car, but you know, we got Dave here on the guitar and it'd be inauthentic for Dave to try to lead gospel music. Uh, but my buddy, Kevin Kelly, pastors Second Baptist up the street and they've got a killer gospel choir. What did you just tell that person? Like you thought you're being helpful but you basically made it about us and them. Assimilation is what every, most people are trying to get diversity right now through assimilation. That is not how you build a healthy multi ethnic church. You've got to do it through accommodation. And Peyton, that's what you were talking about. The structures of the majority culture of the church, they bend, they shift, they adapt in terms of form, uh, uh, in terms of form and practices to welcome the other. And I'm telling you that story because it happened to me two years into my church. An African-American woman said that it helped us think differently differently. We began to accommodate. We started to mix in. In fact, we hired an African-American 21-year-old. He was with us 12 years to be our worship pastor who could not only deliver one style of music, but many styles of music and put it all together. So accommodation, when the majority culture, it could be a black church. The same thing with my black friends and my Hispanic friends leading African-American, Hispanic churches. They're like, Mark, I know white people watch my TV show, but they won't come, you know, my TV program. Or they don't come to my church. Right. And or they'll say, I just want to know when a white guy is going to submit to my leadership. They'll say things like this. Okay, I'm telling you, if you're African-American, Hispanic, trust me on this. White people aren't going to come to your church anymore. People of color are going to go to white churches as long as you try to assimilate diversity. Everybody's got to shift to accommodate that diversity. We don't want to ask the other to check his or her culture at the door. We want to embrace that culture. And again, this is Ephesians chapter three.
0: Yeah, and it, and it has to be everybody. One, one of the things that I think is really important is to also educate your people. So when you bring this up, you've got to educate people that when someone of a different ethnicity comes to the door, don't wreck it, right? Like, like recently, um, a, a leader I'm close with said that uh, someone, and they were – wrestling through this whole thing trying to make these changes and a person of color wrote on their way out after attending for a number of weeks every time I came somebody would come and and basically leap on me and 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 nail me down and for 10 minutes I would just sit there nodding my head as they told me I have black friends and I have black people and I have black and 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 uh, for 10 minutes It was, it would, they were trying to say, you're welcome. It it was like a flashing light. I'm not racist. I'm not racist. I'm not racist, but how would you like it? If you walked into a church of a majority culture, Hispanic or black or Asian, and all they did was talk to you for 10 minutes, not how are you, you know, what? Oh, really? You have kids. But went on a monologue at you about how they had white friends and they knew white people and the meta message being you're a white person. I'm so excited you're here. And, and just, it, it, it's uncomfortable. It, yeah. it would make any of us uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. so it's not, you know, there's even on a, on it. You gotta, you gotta tell people, Hey, don't listen. I, I know you think this way, Mark. I, I think, I think this way. I think, I think Jesus thought this way, or he wouldn't have called a sheep. We're stupid. The average church attender is just stupid. I'm <laughs> stupid, right? Uh, it takes me a long time to get stuff. But, the, you know, it, you got to work and sometimes minister from the assumption that, that people are dumber than, than you give them credit for. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they have to be well, discipled in that.
1: Well, you're, and that's a great, you know, I know we're coming up to the end of the hour, but uh, that's exactly right. My good friend, Santis Beatty with the Wesleyan Church, he's been saying this for years. This isn't a matter of diversity. It's a matter of discipleship. Um, it, the way I say it is, again, it's about the whole gospel, not just part. It's not just Romans one sixteen. I'm not one sixteen a. I should say. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Stop. That's where everybody stops. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Just preach the gospel. you got to go on to why. Why am I not ashamed of the gospel and why the entire book of Romans was written? Not to explain the gospel, Romans 5 through 8, but to explain what Paul calls his own gospel. Romans 16.25, now may God establish you according to my gospel. And the preaching of Jesus Christ, which is the capital G gospel. Paul's good news, that's all the word gospel means, by the way, good news. If if Peyton, you were drowning in a river and I pulled you out and saved your life, it'd be gospel to you, my friend. That's good news. We're the ones who make the word gospel as if it only means one thing: atonement in Christ. Paul's gospel, as he calls it himself, himself Romans 16, 25, my gospel is Gentile inclusion in what would have been and otherwise. All Jewish salvation, in other words, a salvation pitched only to Jews, a local church pitched only to Jews, and a coming kingdom of God pitched only to Jews. The gospel of Paul is Gentile inclusion in what would have been an otherwise all Jewish salvation, church, and kingdom Amen. of God. This is what the book of Romans is about. The capital G gospel, as I call it, is explained in Romans 5.8 only to make a broader argument. The Gospel yeah. of Paul, Ephesians chapter three, verse six. You can see that argument, by the way, right there. It's what he says in Colossians chapter one, Ephesians three, Romans sixteen. So all that's to say is we have to preach the whole gospel. Mm. Romans one sixteen, not just A but B, and not only in terms of preaching it, but more important, demonstrating it. The twentieth century, it was all about explanation. Twenty first is all about demonstration. If you're going to advance the credible gospel, you can't just explain it, you've got to demonstrate the power of Jesus Christ to redeem, to reconcile, to renew broken relationships, man to God, so to speak, men and women to God, and man to man, man and women to one another, love God, love your neighbor, it's just that simple, not just at a personal level, but at a collective level, meaning the local church.
0: Well said, Mark. Well, my guest today has been Mark DeMoz, and we, we've been discussing creating a culture of diversity. Mark, you've got the CQ um, assessment available to churches. Where can people catch up with you and find out more about that?
1: Yeah, easy to get a hold of me, mark at mosaics.info, but go to our website, m o s a i x mosaics.info forward slash CQ. Real simple, mosaics.info forward slash CQ. That's the beginning point. You can click a button there. You can read about it. You click a button, get in touch with me. We'll contact you. We'll explain how everything works and uh, give you sample, uh, uh, the assessment, everything. But yeah, get in touch with me. Easy to find mosaics.info forward slash CQ. And again, that is the starting place in my, I've been doing it 1997. I've been engaged in the space and knowing everything I know, you say, what do I do? I'm telling you, your congregation needs to do the CQ assessment and training.
0: Thanks, Mark. Well, guys, I want to thank you on behalf of Exponential for joining us. Before you go, be sure to register for our fall roundtables. We're going to be doing this in 100 cities around America. And people are already talking about how good these conversations have been. But we've got a special discount going, $39. If you go to multiplication.org, you can register today. And you can also register. We've got um, packets of groups Uh, for groups of 5, 10, or even special discounted rates for groups larger. If your whole church wants to get involved, go ahead and sign up today. Again, individual cost is $39, and the discounts get bigger the bigger groups you sign up for. It's multiplication.org forward slash roundtables. Thanks for joining us again for this edition today of Candid Conversations, and we'll see you next week In the hub, same bat time, same bat station, talking about what we've learned from our journey over the past three months and talking with guests like Mark and others. We'll see you next week. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.